coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. The best men I knew, who also coincidentally are the most lethal people that I would never speak ill to, because they would wipe you and your entire <laughs> family off the, uh, the face of the earth. Most of them were the most empathetic, respectful, quiet, humble people I've ever uh, known. And you'd love to have a conversation with them. A big thanks for tuning in today. We've got our guest, Mike Sorelli, coming up with more great insights like that very soon. But just before we get there, we have to say a big thank you to an overarching sponsor of the show, Hawora. It's a whole person performance well-being growth partner that aims to improve individual and organizational health and well-being by focusing on four key pillars, physical, mental, social, and occupational. If you want to find out more, go to www.haworalife.com. That's H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Michael Sorelli, founder and CEO of the Talent War Group, co-author of The Talent War and retired US Navy SEAL officer. After a 20-year career in Marine Recon, Special Ops and the Navy SEALs, including 10 combat deployments supporting the war against terrorism, a Purple Heart and many other acknowledgements of excellence, Michael has now brought his passions in life of leadership development, talent strategy and human performance to the high-performing world outside of the military. As the founder and CEO of Talent War Group, a specialized executive search firm and talent advisory, Michael helps fill the pipelines of leadership-driven organizations with top-tier talent and leadership culture. He spoke about his work involving leadership development, talent acquisition, and talent management strategy so organizations can thrive by leveraging its biggest investment and resource, its people. Michael also spoke about the Everyday Wire as part of Men's Journal and how that is evolving into something big as a movement. We unpacked his unique surname and what makes character. Michael shed light on legacy and impact as a leader, leadership in parenting, and why humility is so important for high-performing leaders. Michael Sorelli, thanks very much for giving us your time today. Really looking forward to uh, sharing and unpacking your story. Kieran and I were just talking off air about your interesting and unique surname. We'd kind of like to start with that. Uh, yes, we actually embarrassingly mispronounce it. So we pronounce it Sorelli. The correct pronunciation is Sarai. Think like the Treaty of Versailles. So French origin, the, the name is, is Basque. So we did used to celebrate Bastille Day, but when we came across Treasure Island in 1899, which is outside of San Francisco, bullies known as America said, no, your name is Sorelli. And of course, we nodded our head. And we were grateful to be uh, let into the country. We normally, as Irish people, like to claim as many established individuals like yourself, but I think Sorelli is definitely a French one. We won't get our hands on that one. Have you ever traveled back to France to look at your origins or your roots? So uh, we've been France. Uh, no, we lost that side of our history, though on my mother's side, she's full-blooded Italian. Uh, we used to go back to Sicily and uh, Palermo and see family uh, back there. I know it well. I was in a place called Tarmina before and went to Mount Etna and all the volcanic islands. So lovely island. I actually remember a fruit there called a figuridina. Interesting. It's been, it's been an interesting last couple of years, Mike. How has it treated you? What have you, what have you learned about yourself through that period? Every few years has been an uh, interesting uh, time. Well, I retired 
in 2018, leaving behind something that I was absolutely passionate about and um, had dedicated pretty much my, my entire adult life to uh, at the time. So went through a bit of an identity crisis. There's no way to, to sort of sugarcoat that, uh, leaving the military, uh, yet alone leaving the, the SEAL teams and having served at a, a tier one level. It is very much 99.9% uh, .9 of your identity and you gave everything to, to, to do that mission. So I've had to redefine myself. I've had to accept that that period of time is over. Uh, so now I'm trying to be the, the best business leader I can be, translating the skills that made me uh, successful in the SEAL teams, uh, especially the soft skills into the business world. Uh, it's worked out pretty well, still making a lot of mistakes, but enjoying, uh, enjoying the ride. And then COVID, while not making light of COVID, uh, as a lot of people lost their lives, just another rough patch uh, in our lives that especially my, my tribe uh, of SEALs, uh, we're, we're used to, to arduous times. So it was just making the necessary changes to adapt to the environment and just moving on. Talking adaption, one of your greatest skills you learned was humility. And we seem to get that breeding through a lot of the, the former Navy SEALs or individuals in, in the Army, especially the military. What was it like coming into maybe the business space and the business sector where humility isn't always the front skill or front characteristic that you'd see? Well, I, you know, let me, let me step back and, and sort of say that there are a lot of people in the SEAL teams that lack humility. There's a lot of people in the military that lack humility uh, and they're not fun to work with. And probably at times I, I, I lack humility. It's something I work on and I'm still working on. But business world, I've met a lot of great leaders who would have made great military leaders. I've met a lot of bad leaders. The one thing that's unique about the business world and was very different from my prior world is a lot of people that think that money is the ult ultimate indicator of character, and it's not. It's not at all. Just because you make a lot of money does not mean you can treat people with disrespect. And I've seen a lot of that, and it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I've met a lot of people who are very rich in the bank, but absolutely poor in character. And ultimately, your legacy as a leader, guys, is not how much money you've made. It's the impact you've had on the people that worked for you. As a leader, your job, one of the primary jobs is to create more leaders. But there's a lot of highly successful people there that drove results out there in the business world where you know, if people asked, were asked about them, uh, they'd say, yeah, that person's an asshole. Yeah, created a company that drove results and it became a big company, but I don't, I don't want to be around that person ever again or work for that person ever again. And say that bad leader developed a bit of self-awareness overnight and maybe came to the realization that they weren't as good a leader as they should be. They weren't serving others and adding value. And it, it, there's more to it than just earning money. Where would you start with that person on that discovery phase to try to help that person who's now recognizing not as good as they need to be? What are the first steps? Well, dude, I, I hope if they realize that, that they've gone through a very spiritual moment and... I hope they, they, they cried, they, they let it out, you know, that they, they commit to changing their behaviors in the way they lead. Again, I, I had my moments where I, uh, I led well. I had my moments where I did not. But for someone who realizes they've consistently been a bad leader, who's not developed the people uh, below them that has not treated their people with respect, you know, the first step I would do is go in front of them and admit it. Ultimately, as leaders, we want to create great cultures. And you cannot create a great culture unless you build a culture of vulnerability. And I know that sounds 
for a lot of people at face value, bad. No, I don't want to be vulnerable because if I, if I open myself up to be vulnerable, people will make fun of me. They'll hurt me. That, that's actually the opposite. If you look at the SEAL teams, and I actually got this from one of the founding members of Delta Force, which is like the best military unit in, in the world. And he said, you know, the one thing that made their organization unique is that there was this emotional intimacy amongst the operators at Delta Force which means they could be vulnerable to let people know that they were hurting. Maybe their head wasn't in the right space and they, they, they had no fear of, uh, of, you know, uh, rejection or insults. And that was a great culture. So you've got to be vulnerable. And as a leader, step up and say, Hey guys, I, I've done a lot of soul searching and you know what? I haven't been the best leader and I want to change that. And the reason I'm telling you this is to open up and want to apologize and tell you I'm committing to changing my behaviors to be the very best leader for all of you. And, and you know what? If you do that in front of a group of people, I'd love to believe that they would wrap their arms around you and say, hey, thank you for admitting that. You, you've been a pretty big a-hole, but the, that took a lot of courage to, to step in front of us, say that, and we're, we're committed to helping you as well. You know, this whole thing about being, being a man, the strongest men I knew, the best men I knew, who also coincidentally are the most lethal people that... But I would never speak ill to because they would wipe you and your entire <laughs> family off the, uh, the face of the earth. But those men who served at the tier one level, most of them were the most empathetic, respectful, quiet, humble people I've ever uh, known. And you'd love to have a conversation with them. And, and you'd meet him in an airport and have a conversation with this guy. And you're like, dude, that is just an all around good human. He's so nice, engaging conversations. And you'd have no clue that he was a tier one operator. What do you think the key ingredients are to develop that empathy? Is it the training that you go through maybe in the military or is it just, you know, the upbringing of some people that they just gather it innately and develop it over time? It, so, you know, different strokes for different folks. I like to say that combat is the ultimate mentor. And I remember my first two deployments, you know, I'd finished number one out of every, almost every military school I'd uh, gone to, uh, even set records in the, uh, the Marine Corps. I thought I had to figure it out. And then I get into pretty substantial combat and I felt overwhelmed and I realized I wasn't as good as I was. And so I'm thankful for that. Very thankful for that and that it humbled me very quickly. And I think for people that are highly self-reflective, this is an attribute, people that reflect on their actions and their behaviors often and their performance develop empathy at a greater rate than those around them. Uh, and one of the, the, the best tools for self-reflection is journaling. I know a lot of people don't like that. Uh, if they can't type it into their phone, uh, they're, they're usually not writing. But best performers, those, those guys that were lethal, were always writing in a notebook, writing about their performance, what they learned that day, but what they could do better. People that allow life to humble them and reflect upon it build that empathy at a great rate. So ultimately, combat or life, is going to be your greatest mentor. And I know for some people, and it's, it's frustrating, where you see that person, maybe that business leader who's full of ego, who's a raging psychopath or sociopath, but continues to be successful. As hard as that is to watch, give it time. Give it time. Because I, I, I tell you what, that person will fall extremely far. And when they fall, it will hurt. And the only hope is without passing judgment on that person is that when they hit 
rock bottom where they hit hard is that they can finally humble themselves and be more empathetic as a human. There, there's a guy named General Mattis. I, I don't know if you've heard that name. He was our Secretary of Defense. He was a famous Marine Corps general. Talked about trauma. And we all experience trauma in life. You don't have to go to war to experience trauma. That's nonsense. But he talked about what you can learn from trauma. And he actually referred to it as post-traumatic growth. That if you took the time to reflect after a bad incident, that you actually become a more empathetic man or woman uh, to your fellow human beings. Michael, we've talked already about humility and and character and integrity, but you were very successful in the Marine Corps, right? You, like you said, you were right at the top of that. When you're in the business space now and you've got Talent War Group and and the book Talent War, when you're really working with understanding and, and mining for talent and helping develop that talent and developing leaders, how do you define success for you and those entities now? Because is it as easy to to gauge it as it might well have been when you were in the Marines and you were, I don't know, doing sniper rifle practice or something like that. You know, in the military, we often had things called medals, mission essential tasks. And, uh, and I'm forgetting what the other was lessons, but basically you had requirements that you had to meet hard requirements. And in the business world, while, you know, we set KPIs and we hold quarterly review boards and I get that and we set metrics that we want to hit. I'm taking more of a intrinsic look at the definition of success. And I've come to realize that money can't be the the primary indicator of success. Though we've conditioned society today, guys, to, to sort of believe that money is the indicator of success. It's not. I've got a wonderful team at Talent War Group. Some of them are young, fresh out of college. I, I've got a, a very deep bench we call the Leadership Collective. And the best thing I can do that, that I define as success is impact those around me. And so if I can create more leaders, if I can create leaders that are better than me, that's the biggest emotional reward I'm going to get. I do have a bucket list. There's things I want to achieve in life. Uh, some revolve around business. And I'm about to launch a big, big brand in a very interesting way called ATTA, A-T-T-A, like Attaboy, um, which is focused on helping people live better lives. It'll be fitness apparel, uh, fitness supplements, and and grooming. And to sort of kick that uh, thing off, I'm going to go skydive into Mount Everest in October, November. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So always looking for ways to push myself. Um, It's going to be very spiritual for me. uh, And that's an area in my life that that I'm trying to improve upon. Um, And then, you know, uh, the war undoubtedly took me from my children uh, and the amount of time I got to spend with them and it ended up in a broken marriage, um, which we had a, a very high divorce rate in the uh, the SEAL teams, particularly the SEAL team I was at. Um, and so, you know, again, I owe them my time and I want to repair that relationship to the best of my ability. But um, there's a lot of places I haven't seen, a lot of people I haven't met, um, a lot of people I haven't learned from. And that's ultimately my, my success sort of revolves around that right now. I'd love to jump into Ada a bit more. Where did, what gives you the, the drive to go after apparel supplements and some grooming? What was the drive behind it? So uh, funny enough, when I wrote the book, Men's Journal reached out to me and asked if they could do an article on the book. And of course, the answer is going to be yes, because we're trying to get the, the book in as many hands as possible. And they've got a big following. 
And we did the interview and we talked for quite a while after the interview. And then uh, they called back and they're like, hey, we, we love your approach on life. And I talked about this concept called the everyday warrior. If the everyday warrior, we're all warriors. But in particular, we're all warriors trying to live a better life. And the everyday warrior approach is a no-hack, realistic approach to living a purpose-driven and fulfilling life. And so they asked if I would start something called the Everyday Warrior Series, which I have. We actually are going to start dropping a lot more columns starting August 1st and hopefully help people, give them some realism on how to improve their lives, how to set goals properly, how to attack those goals in small phases. And from that, the group that owns Men's Journal came back and said, hey, we'd like to start a new brand. And we've been working for the last six months to, to, to launch this brand in the fall. Um, but we want to do something differently. We want to do what we say we're going to do. From corporate responsibility to, to, to helping people, uh, the products we chose, um, we want to be everyday reminders. When you take that vitamin pack, it's an everyday reminder to live your life as an everyday warrior to take things one step at a time. That if you wanna lose 50 pounds, that's not gonna happen overnight. That that's gonna take five months of dedication and taking one meal at a time. The things that you put in your body, they matter, that's your temple. The things you wear, we want you to be comfortable. We also want them uh, to, to be that reminder in a positive way. And the same thing with grooming. And that's why we chose those three products because they're almost a part of everyone's everyday life. And of course, we'll expand from there but I think the content that comes out of ADA is going to create a big community. We want to create a big tribe. And yeah, there will be micro tribes within that larger tribe. Overall, I think the, the message out there is one in negativity. And we want, to, uh, we want to take a different approach with that. And the other thing, too, is we want to create a company that doesn't virtue signal. What I mean by that is that you change your logo to the rainbow flag during Gay Pride Month, but you actually do nothing about it. That's, that's virtue signaling. We, we want to actually, with our corporate responsibility, we want to support great nonprofits out there that are doing good work to impact people in Shane's lives. So that's why we're excited about it. Uh, Sounds brilliant. The fact that you're going to be very much a testament and epitome of this lifestyle and your tribe, everyone's going to be brand ambassadors, as it were, because that's all they do, right? That's their makeup. Brings me to the question of rolling back to leadership and leadership development, something you're obviously um, a thought leader in that space for. Are leaders born or are they made? It's a question that we hear answers to from so many people, but love to hear your take on that. This, this is a good one. And let, let me preface it with this. So I am writing a second book with the one, my co-author, George Randall, uh, a guy named Tom Lokar, who's an industrial organizational psychologist, also a serial CHRO and chief leadership officer. And then two other guys I consider brothers, Rich Devinney that wrote the book, The Attributes. He was also a SEAL. And then uh, Brian Decker, who is a Army Special Forces officer and is the current director of player development for the Indianapolis Colts. For the uh, Irish listeners, that's a uh, NFL team, uh, a football team. Yeah, yeah, my football team, in fact. Ah, okay, there you go. <laughs> and so we're writing this book on culture and leadership. And that's one of the chapters, are leaders born or made? Now, let's talk about, like, are people born with innate qualities? Yeah, some are. If you look at genetics, is somebody who is six foot seven, do they have a higher likelihood of playing in the NBA? Yes. And that goes to nature, not nurture. But with leadership, where most of us tend to, to believe is that leaders aren't made, or leaders aren't born, they're made. Absolutely. 
by the mentors that they have, by the, the folks that they grew up with, by the peers around them that shaped their behaviors into what they are as adults. Now, leadership is, you know, it's both a noun and a verb. A, someone is a leader, noun, and leadership is an act. But ultimately, leadership is not a title. I don't care if you're a VP of sales for one of the largest companies in the world. That's great. That's awesome. And I have a lot of respect for what you've earned. But leadership, much like culture, at the end of the day, is a behavior. It's what you do. Just like I talked about Ada, we want to do what we say we're going to do. Well, as a leader, I have to say one thing and then my actions have to reflect that. And so if you've been mentored, if you've been coached and you, you've been corrected along the way, um, then yes, you're absolutely, absolutely a product of the great mentors and coaches and peers in your life. I loved what you'd said before, which was about a leadership vaccine that companies and businesses try and give a class and give a, a quick jab to someone about leadership and now let them go off and be a leader day to day. But they often there's fall downs from that. Where do companies, you know, miss out on creating that actual development for their people? Yeah, I say, I call it the leadership inoculation. This is what most companies do. They bring people in to teach leadership for a week and then everyone gets back to work. And, and nothing, like I've seen percentages, like only 5% of the information given in that week is retained or, or acted upon. The leadership development industry is massive, guys. It's like to the tune of like 380 uh, billion. It's massive and most programs fail. Ultimately, then this is where Talent War Group tries to differentiate itself is we have to come into your organization and we are going to help teach leadership, but we have to actually train the leaders within that organization, how to be leaders that develop their people on a daily basis, that we have to teach them to become the ultimate coaches and mentors. It has to become an organic internal capability because ultimately your culture is determined by your level of leadership. And so when we come into a company, we have a couple ways of doing this. One, we don't want to do it in a classroom. Nobody, like I doze off in a classroom as, as disciplined as some people may think I am. People start talking and they're briefing off a of PowerPoint. I, you can see me start to, to fall asleep. So we like to get people in the mountains uh, or ITWX into the wild extreme. As we take senior leaders from companies, we, we take them into the mountains where you push them outside their mental and uh, physical comforts. And that's where true learning and behavioral change takes place. Or other things like we take them to battlefields, historic battlefields, and, and they're out there and, and they're hearing about past leaders. And, and these lessons, even though they're historical lessons, still are relevant to, uh, to modern times. And so we get people outside their comfort zones. We teach them the leadership and then we have to stay plugged in until it becomes an organic capability within the company we're working with. We eventually want the companies to look at us, our, our, our partners, as we call them, and say, we no longer need you. And that, that we'll, we'll give you two thumbs up and say, we've done our job. So, you, you know, you, your leaders, again, this is a daily activity. They have to be constantly coaching and mentoring the people below them with the hope of creating better leaders than themselves. And we're going to one of those sites, be that, you know, Gettysburg or somewhere like that. You've mentioned the historical lessons that might well have been passed through years. What's, what's one of those historical lessons that 
you've taken from someone in the past and, and is, is very close to heart for you as a leader? Oh, so here's the thing. So you just said Gettysburg, even though they were using, uh, you know, well, that repeater rifles had just made it into the cavalry. Yeah. Um, you know, so technology, yes, the technology uh, does not mirror what we have today. But you're talking about people. You're talking about people, uh, whether on the, 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 the southern side or the northern side, there were personalities at play. And so when we bring our clients out there and we talk about the personalities, rather than focusing on the tactics, we talk about the personalities of the leaders, both on the, uh, the, the Confederate side and, and the, uh, the northern side. And there, were even, there was friction even amongst the northern generals. And as we're telling people those stories, they're like, oh, my God, that's Todd from marketing. That, that is totally taught for marketing who won't listen to a thing I say and is the smartest man in the room. And that's the point we're trying to, to, to bring home is like, yep, they dealt with the same human challenges that you do now uh, in, in our current uh, century. Uh, one of the best lessons I learned is you had General Lee and uh, he, one of his most trusted generals he referred to as his, uh, his right hand was a guy named General Longstreet. And um, I may be getting this wrong. I'm trying to remember. On the second day of the battle, uh, General Lee, who was exhausted and should have listened to General Longstreet and just let the North take the hills and then move the entire army and not fight in Gettysburg. It was very sound advice. But General Lee, was, who was a great general, had gotten emotional. He wanted to end the war there. And so he started to make decisions off uh, emotion. Regardless, General Lee is the senior general. Longstreet works for him. And General Lee told Longstreet to uh, take his division and maneuver around the, uh, the, the northern positions and attack. And Longstreet was not aligned. And he did finally do what General Lee had asked him to do, but he didn't execute it with violence of action as if he had come up with a plan himself. So to some leaders, you know, you, you make a decision and you've got your senior leaders in the room. And if they're not aligned, as a leader, General Lee shouldn't have let Longstreet leave that tent unless he had a conversation and said, hey, are we good? Are you going to execute this as if you came up with this plan with, with 100% dedication uh, to making sure that it succeeds? And that conversation never ha happened. They assumed, General Lee assumed that he would naturally execute. So you, there's so many lessons to take for modern business leaders, even current military leaders. I mean, we, we, we did this in the military as we'd go talk about past commanders. And when you look at it, when you, when you cut through all the, the, the years of history and you finally get to know the people at play, you realize that leadership is a human-centric activity. And it doesn't matter if it's 1864 or, or, or 2021. Leadership is, is about people. And so there's a lot to learn from our past leaders uh, in those type of scenarios that I just discussed with Longstreet and General Lee. I love this because it builds nicely into a diversity of thought. So if you have an organization that listens to all, includes everybody's input and the best idea wins, as you've mentioned before, that's easy to do when it's a new idea, when you're trying to be creative and it's a new development that the company's going after. But what happens when it's the company's facing a crisis or in the past year when things weren't going very badly or there was challenges afoot, how does the company ensure that everybody's heard in those moments? Yeah, so this concept, the best idea wins, guys, is it's, you know, it's not new to the SEAL teams. Just because you may have a certain rank that outranks everyone else, 
does not mean that all the ideas come from you. It may be from the most junior Navy SEAL that only has three deployments that raises his hands and says, hey, why don't we approach the problem from this direction? And if, if that idea makes sense, you're like, okay, hey, let's go with that. Uh, let me caveat this, uh, this, this concept, the best idea wins. Um, it's not very difficult when you're of average intelligence, and, and I'm referring to myself, I was always surrounded by, you know, 20 to, to, to 80 guys that were all, or and women that were more intelligent than me. And even if I was a senior leader, I would tell them the problem that we're facing and let them go to work with ideas. I don't think I ever was the, the guy who came up with the idea that we utilized. And, and that doesn't hurt my ego whatsoever. I think that's a testament to the team that I, uh, I built around me. But in hard times, well, one, there, there are some times where people can't be heard because time is a factor. Like, hey, listen, guys, I'd love to take input right now, but this, this fire has to be put out right now. So just this is what I'm going to ask you to do, and you need to go execute it. Same thing with a firefight. We, we can't have a lengthy debate and get everyone's input. But for the times that you can, to create a diverse and inclusive environment, which I think a lot of people get those definitions wrong, you want to give people the opportunity to be heard. Even if you don't go with their idea, you've helped build that trust that their input matters. And with COVID, I'm going to go a little different direction. Hey, with those uh, situations where the, the information seems like it's changing on the minute, uh, when things are ambiguous, as a leader, you have to make a decision. That, that, that is your, your, your duty as a leader is to make a decision. But it doesn't mean you have to make this grandiose decision. In, in the face of incomplete information, I, I, you know, I look at my team and I'm like, hey, listen, based off what I'm seeing, we're going to start heading uh, left in, in this direction. We're going to do it in baby steps, taking small baby steps. And if the information changes, I look at the group and say, hey, I was wrong. Uh, it's, the diff- information is different today. So, hey, we're now going right in making small iterative decisions rather than committing the uh, all our resources uh, and mount manpower into moving a, a, towards a direction that I don't know is uh, is accurate. Would love to um, unpack transition, and transition can be for someone in a performance department in a sports organization going into a leadership position. It could be someone getting promoted in a front office. It could be someone transitioning from military into business. How how can people? give themselves the best chance of, of fitting in into that, that next portion of their journey? Yeah, great, great question. We are all in transition constantly, which is to say we're, we're, we're facing change. Um, if I know I'm transitioning into a leadership role, you know, I'm in the business world, I'm moving from a general manager to a senior uh, vice president. Usually where I start with that is I, I have to look in the mirror and say, what got me here is not necessarily going to get me to the next level. So I step back and I do a personal inventory. I call it know thyself. If you guys ask me, hey, Mike, are you the same person that you were a month ago? My answer would be no. If you say, are you the same person that you were three, uh, three years ago? I'd say absolutely not. We're always changing. Our, our strengths and weaknesses are always changing. So know thyself is to do a personal inventory of where you're at in life so that you have a good understanding of what you bring to the fight, to the team. And then look at the position. And try to talk to people that have been in that position before. Uh, I want to know everything about it, what it what it entails, what key attributes are required to be successful in that position. And if I identify an attribute that I'm weak at that's required to be successful in that position, guess what? I've got to change again, or I've got I've got to find a way to to hone that attribute to become stronger at that attribute 
in order to succeed at that position. But to, to, to merely say, hey, I'm going to take what I did here as a general manager and just do the same exact thing as a, as a senior vice president, uh, that's a start, but it's not a, uh, a recipe for success necessarily. And then looking back, if you were a different person years ago, and maybe if you got the opportunity to speak to a younger self, is there anything you'd want them to know or any lessons you'd want them to learn as soon as possible? Or would you let them on their course and let them make their mistakes and learn on the spot? Dude, such a good question. And so I asked this of my podcast uh, guests, is what would you say to your 20-year-old self? The reality is, guys, we are who we are because of the mistakes that we made. It's part of the learning process. And part of the learning process as a parent that you never want to rob your children of is you may see them starting to head in a bad direction. Sometimes you have to let them do that in order to reinforce the point so that they truly learn. But if I was going to say anything to my 20-year-old self, it would be this. If you want to make God smile, tell him about your plans. Hopefully, my 20-year-old self can understand what that means. Is you may have these plans, but God has uh, other plans. Life has other plans. And just go with the journey and do what you think is right. One other thing I may say is uh, in 2009, invest everything you have in Bitcoin and then uh, <laughs> uh, walk away. Yeah, we, we were too late on that boat. Yeah. Um, Mike, my last question then is back to Kieran. Curious, a little bit of a selfish one. Seen it on your social and it's pretty close to home. How can I be a, a better father, a better parent? Like leadership in that space, really important. What's it all about? I'd, I'd like to say that I was successful in this arena, but um, here's the truth, and you'll hear a lot of SEALs say this, um, especially at the tier one level, is that your family came second to the SEAL teams. That is the ugly, hard truth of what we did. You know, I went to war 10 or 10 combat deployments and I missed a lot of the key times uh, of my, my children's lives. And I'm trying to repair that relationship right now because then, you know, you add an ugly divorce to that. But for all the parents, one, you got to be there for them. You got to be present. And you are, and this is why I say this, you are the most important mentors, the most influential mentors that your children can ever have. So as we talk about leadership development in the corporate setting, which is the, the, the responsibility of every leader, guess what? The responsibility of every parent is to also develop your kids, is to be a coach and a mentor to them, not an authoritarian figure, Yeah, even though sometimes you've got to be that. You've got to get your pound of flesh if they made a, a very bad mistake in order to, to reinforce certain lessons. But look at it this way. You've got to be a coach and mentor to your kids. And if you do your job well, you are going to create people that are, one, competent, self-confident, self-reliant, loving, respectful, empathetic, and contribute to this thing, this big, uh, this big tribe we call a uh, community. And, and there's no greater responsibility for a man or woman than being a parent. Cheers to that, Mike. Mike, it's, we've had a great 40 minutes so far. We've touched on humility, leadership, even profound lessons on parenting. We have this question that we ask everyone that comes on the show and it's a nice wrap up and we'd love to ask you and get your opinion it's what does high performance mean to you mike high performance is relative it's different for other people to you know for for a young basketball player or maybe a, a, a older basketball player to judge their performance against a guy like lebron's james you're, you're going to be let down it's it's a very personal thing it's performance for you 
It's a commitment to improve your performance, not compared to others, but for yourself. And for people, I would say with this, regardless of where your performance at, start where you're at, do what you can, and build from there. Success doesn't happen overnight. But if you're committed to high performance and becoming a better performance and you're taking the necessary steps, like reflecting, doing an evening review, an after-action review on yourself and what you need to do to improve, then uh, you'll continue to, uh, to elevate or accelerate on this path we call high performance. Brilliant. Michael, thank you very much for your time today. We, uh, we got so much from it. Really, really grateful. Yeah, please stay in touch. All the very best from Ireland. Dude, all the very best from America. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, William Mike. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan. <laughs>